Welcome back to the No Walls podcast. This is a podcast about all things human rights and refugee law, including the people working within it and the clients we represent. Hi, been a while. It has. What's been going on? Anything? Anything? Uh, anything happening in the last few days? Yeah, well, I've I've been gallivanting all over the world for two months after qualifying. You have. You took a you took a nice little break. First of all, congratulations on you qualifying as a solicitor. Thank you. It's been four years of studying and working and just a lot. So it feels like a great moment. Wow. Wow. And then you took two months off before resuming. What, what did you do? Two months. I was in Patagonia hiking, Chile and Argentina. I was in Brazil on the beaches in tropical islands. It was epic. And then flew back to wow. cold, dark London with the, just in time for the clocks to go back and it to get dark at half three. So... <laughs> But um, no, it's good to be back. Well, Anna, we're glad to have you back. And um, I know she always had a few busy months as well with some some serious cases. But yeah, what's the what's the plan for for season three? Yeah, as ever, the time that we spend away is not time spent away from thinking about the podcast. We have a lot of hopefully really engaging content for you guys. One of the first episodes, if not the first episode that we wanted to do was obviously to address the situation in Gaza right now, because that's something that we, we really do need to delve into, particularly through the context of international humanitarian law, which is a term that gets thrown around a lot in the public domain. But whilst we were sort of getting things in place for that episode, the Supreme Court at very short notice notified us that judgment in the Rwanda litigation was to be handed down on the 15th of November, which was two days ago. For anyone that doesn't know, we won. And that is what this episode is going to be about you listening will know about the Supreme Court judgment that came out on Wednesday concerning the Rwanda policy and finding it unlawful. So we thought we'd come on today. We've got Tafik Hussain, Sophie Lucas and Troy Zak, um, all three who worked on the Rwanda challenge over the years, and to unpick the judgment, talk about what the day was like, the run-up to the decision. I wasn't involved in the case myself, so I'm going to be asking a couple of questions to these three. So I think we'll start about pre-Supreme Court. So take us back right to the interim relief hearing and that the European Court of Human Rights. Take us back to that and what happened since. I think, Sophie, you can take us. I was too traumatised about the, the beginnings of it all, so I think you go for it and take us through the horrible period of interim relief up until uh, the jubilation of the Rule 39 order. Yeah, I was thinking this morning actually about when we had this call in April when we seen Boris Johnson's announcement and Tafik called me and I was like, oh, I don't know, don't know about this. I don't know if I've got the the emotional capacity for this challenge and I didn't know how long it would go on for and how sort of draining it would be. And I, you know, you do think, however draining emotionally, <laughs> physically, and how tiring this entire ordeal has been, it pales into comparison with what our clients have been through. Um, and and yeah, so so June last year, we were dealing with numbers and numbers of terrified clients who had removal directions, some of whom were actually put on the plane. We um, challenged the removal directions in the High Court, the Court of Appeal, the Supreme Court. We were unsuccessful domestically. We obtained an interim measure from the European Court of Human Rights and none of our clients and no other asylum seekers were removed to Rwanda. And that sort of set the course for the the next 18 months, um, culminating in yesterday's 
decision, which is a huge victory and something that our clients can sort of breathe easily for the first time in, in a really, really long time. So it's it was an incredible day. I think I think that is part that's part of the madness, isn't it? Like that day when look, let's be honest, when you lose at the administrative court on interim relief, you then lose at the Court of Appeal, you then lose at the Supreme Court. Expectations are sort of relatively damaged at that point. And then and then you get this this order from the European Court of Human Rights, and you'll all remember, right, Sky News, where they have they have the plane on the runway, and, and you can see people getting escorted onto the plane, and it's not just us watching this. This is one of those cases where it was pretty much the whole country and people outside of the country watching that, thinking the plane was going to go. Those injunctions come through last minute. People are relying upon them at the last minute at the Court of Appeal, and eventually you just think, is the plane going to go with one? Is it going to go with two? What's going on here? And then you just see the lights off on the runway. On, on Sky News and that that for me is always something that will that will stick out but the way in which those domestic defeats shaped my sort of perception of my optimism of winning substantively at domestic level look I'll, anyone that knows me knows that after every hearing I just thought well I think we've got a strong case but I, I just don't think we're going to get anywhere given given the way that the domestic courts approached interim relief and <laughs> I'm glad I was wrong it was I think it was it was so crushing when we didn't obtain interim relief domestically. And it is, as you say, sure, the practicalities of like, we couldn't contact our clients. We didn't know if they were on the way to the aeroplane or if they were on the plane, if they had signal, if they didn't have their phones anymore. Like it's so intensely stressful when you know you've got someone relying on you and you're genuinely terrified they're about to be removed somewhere where they could be sent back to, I don't know, Syria, Iran, uh, Afghanistan. and to have the vindication yesterday in the Supreme Court that actually they were at real risk. And thank God none of them ended up going because we now, as we knew all along, they were at risk of being sent back to their countries of origin. And that, but that, exactly, that's not... I know it's easy to say, well, we've been arguing that all along, but we've genuinely believed that that real risk was a real risk all along on the basis of the strength of the evidence, right? I mean, we looked at the evidence that the UNHCR put in initially, it didn't from leave stage, we thought... This is mad. But then when you're, when you're constantly being knocked back, suddenly you start to think, well, have I just got this horribly wrong? Am I, am I attributing too much weight to this evidence? Um, and and exa- exactly what you're saying about vindication, just to have Lord Reed say what he said and ultimately say, well, this is what the evidence has said all along. It was, it was almost... Uh, I can't, <laughs> vindication isn't necessary. I, I felt like I was being gaslit at times by some of these decisions and and the notion that that could all be put to one side was um that that was that was huge on wednesday yeah and 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 going back to what you said about lord reed what what was great about it was him making it clear i think he was he was speaking to the public and in many ways to the government that this isn't a politicized decision we've not taken into account the noise and the politics that clearly has surrounded this case from the beginning They've made this very much a legal decision based on the evidence. But when the president of the Supreme Court sits there and starts off by making it clear that this is not about the politics and it's just about the law, I think that, that was something. That really was something. Well, he doesn't he doesn't start off with that, though, does he? He starts off with a judgment that I believe was about missold PPI or something along <laughs> those lines. 
Same. Now, that was the most bizarre scenario because I mean, for anyone who's listening, so uh, Sophie and Topik attended in person. Um, I was I was watching it remotely, right? So you hear that it's live from nine forty-five or whatever. So I'm just sat there at my laptop. I've put my phone on, do not disturb. I'm ready, and you're just thinking, how long is this other judgment about this banking problem going to go on, man? You know why everyone's watching this? You can see the whole courtroom's full. I don't know if there was anyone from that bank there. Yeah, it looked like it was mostly <laughs> human rights solicitors and barristers in there. And you finally get to what you want to get to. And how did you not feel? Because I've, I've been speaking to everyone about this. Everyone has slightly different points in the judgment as to where they were convinced we were going to win. I'm forever the skeptic, right? So I was sort of waiting for the, notwithstanding everything I've just said, but that, that didn't come, thankfully. But what was, what was the point for you? It was, it was, uh, it was incredibly painful. I don't, <laughs> to vegan I sitting next to each other. I think I ate about six mints in like two minutes, just something to do. I was just, we were just breathing really deeply. And I do think, I mean, I was obviously this case has been kind of all consuming for such a long time. But I think the level of adrenaline, how incredibly emotional it was, made me really realise sitting next to my client, I still get to go home at the end of the day and I know what my future holds. I can't even imagine if this is how I feel and I'm sitting next to you know, a young Syrian with a family in the UK. I can't imagine what that experience was was like for him. Um, it doesn't even bear thinking about. Yeah, and and one of one of our clients was there. And when you when you see clients like that in court, you you are always instinctively sort of positive. You know, you got you embrace them. I was, you know, we were so nervous. And I saw him before uh, the judges came in, you know, and, and, I, and I hugged him and, you know, he was just, he's very stoic and he was like, you know, you know, good luck. And then I realised, what happens if we lose? And he's just there and I, we've got to turn around and try and explain to him what just happened. And you're right, it was just, it was, this, it was a horrible feeling. And then sitting there, yeah, I was sat next to you and you, I don't know if you noticed what I was doing. I was literally just, like my head was in my hands looking down while he was reading it and as going back to Troy's point at what point like weirdly looking back now from the intro I just thought yeah how I think we won but it was yeah I think it from the beginning as well as soon as it was mentioned about the European Convention on Human Rights I thought I don't for me I thought it was from then I know they were deliberately trying to make it very clear and like with the political landscape around it but I think it seemed favourable from the outset. But maybe retrospectively, it feels that way. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, we've we've all been there, right? Where not not in a case of this magnitude, and not with you know Lord Reed reading out a summary, but in various hearings over the years where you've thought the judgment, whether it's on a kind of a permission hearing or or um, or an interim relief hearing, because that's when you normally don't know a dis- the outcome and they're reading it out it starts off really well and you think, oh, hang on a minute, this is, this is going good. And then, and then it's the however. <laughs> um, and yeah, as it sure is right, it's the however, it's the notwithstanding, it's the, um, it's the final twist. And you always think, are, are, they, are judges doing this on purpose just to, just to put, put a bit of drama into it? And it never came. The however never came. It kept going and going all for us. And then it was the, what, the final few sentences and it was the you know the Secretary of State's appeal is dismissed and that was and that's when yeah I I, I got emotional and I thought hang on a minute I'm 
I probably sh- can't cry here now. This would be, and then I looked over to Sophie and she was crying. So then, then that, that helped a lot because I then stopped immediately. And your, how did he feel, your client? He, yeah, I think Sophie, you tell the story because he saw every, all our faces and, and quite clearly realised it was good news, but he was still un- unsure of what was going on, right? Does he speak English or understand English? No, we had an interpreter, I think, and I mean, obviously he's relieved, but I think it's, it's, it's important not to understate what he's been through in the best part of 18 months. And I think, you know, he said afterwards, I don't think I can feel immediately better or recover soon. I mean, it's not for us, you know, in the last couple of days, it's really sunk in and it and it's feeling incredible that this is, this is what we were searching for for so long. But for for people who've been through that much trauma and to have been put through the ordeal they have since they arrived in the UK, there's not a quick recovery for that. And as much as, you know, there is a huge sense of a relief and they can now dare to hope about their future, there is also recovery from what this litigation and the terror it's put them through. So, of course, he was relieved, but it's it's not kind of that instant total joy, because how could you possibly, after what you've what's been done to you by by a state you came to to claim protection it's a, re- it's a really important point because a, a lot of our listeners probably will know but some of them won't right the idea that, that you won at the supreme court on this point doesn't suddenly mean that you're a refugee here this this is all about where your claim is going to be determined and where you're going to spend the rest of your life but now there's another fight to try and get a claim admitted to the united kingdom to try and ensure that you can ventilate that claim adequately and then to get a decision and for a lot of people even once they're in this system, that's a process that takes years because of huge backlogs and, and, other, and other real problems at the Home Office, right? So, Sophie, you're bang on in that, yeah, we can go home and we've got some clarity as to the judgment, but the clients themselves probably still don't have anywhere near the clarity that one would want to be able to, to sleep easy at night. I've got the um, transcript of, a, of an attendance we had with the client afterwards that I think is worth reading he said I was inside the court among the legal team I thanked them for their work I felt like I was among family I realized everyone was so happy the whole legal team maybe I cried I can't remember but I'm still not absorbing everything and it will take a little while to realize and recover which I think kind of it perfectly expresses it for people that don't know exactly what the judgment means can you just take us through yeah. a bit in simple terms what it said and what its impact is yeah sure I think I think what we can do is maybe focus on how scathing the Supreme Court is of the Rwanda system and their record, because there's a long list of things that they say or they accept uh, are problematic with Rwanda. All things, all things that UNHCR said all along, though. All things that UNHCR said, and that's what, and that goes back to my point about how I felt I was being gaslit. I was like, are people not hearing this? How is this getting knocked back? And and that's the point in the judgment, by the way, where it turned for me. When Lord Reed started reading out, this is a non-exhaustive list of some of the things that UNHCR raised on the evidence, and it was extrajudicial killings and people subject to the Israel-Rwanda agreement being taken out sort of covertly to other countries and the risk of... Revo- and I was just sitting there going, this is insane. How does this even have to end up here, right? Yeah, I think, and it's important for people to hear this, especially just people who heard and saw what happened and has read what's been said and just quite can so quickly and easily just say, well, well, well let's, let's just pass a bunch of laws to make Rwanda safe. I mean, they're not listening. What, what are, you, are you not reading what the, judge, the judges have held? 
So let's go through that. Um, let's go through that in in specific paragraphs where they make those findings. I felt, I think, as you say, what, something that was so powerful was that introduction where Lord Reed says the principle of non-refoulement. It's not just the ECHR. It's the Refugee Convention. It's the UN Convention Against Torture. It's the UN International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. It is the ECHR and it's also a principle of customary international law and it's domestic. It's the Asylum and Immigration Appeals Act and it's the Human Rights Act and it's the Nationality and Immigration Asylum Act. It's this is not we're not relying on sort of as the prime minister has since said, you know, the jurisdiction of a of, of foreign court to have that fundamental principle so embedded internationally, domestically. And, it, and they say in the judgment, this is a principle the UK government has repeatedly committed itself to on the international stage consistently with this country's reputation for developing and upholding the rule of law. I mean, that's a really clear message. This is what the law is in this country. If you push it too far, this is the third pillar of the state. This is, you know, the, the courts are an organ of the state. And I think that rang through this judgment. It's not a challenge to executive power. That's not what this is. This is the court fulfilling their proper function as an organ of the state and clarifying what our domestic and international obligations are. And I found that as an introduction to this politically charged case um, really powerful and, and helpful for, for press coverage as well. Yeah, I think what's da- what's damning is... When, when the court reminds us, refers to the evidence that was before them, and in particular when they mention, and I think Woodreed seemed, in my view, pretty moved when he was reading this, um, when he was mentioning that the UK government itself criticised Rwanda for extrajudicial killings, deaths in custody, enforced disappearances and torture, where the, it had led to British police warning Rwandan nationals living in Britain of credible plans to kill them on the part of the state. He then goes on to mention what we know about the refugees who had been shot dead in Rwanda for um, protesting about food rations, killing, I think, at least 12 people. And then he, at the end of that paragraph, uh, paragraph 76, he says that all of that had happened and all the while... Rwanda had ratified many international human rights conventions, including, as you mentioned, Sophie Uncat and the ICCPR. This raises serious questions as to its compliance with international obligations. And I think that's really relevant because this whole, the, the, the noise since has, has, has been a lot about signing enforceable treaties and effectively entering into new international relations. But all of this is in the backdrop of them having already signed a bunch of um, international treaties and I think that summary is really important for anyone to read if they're going to go through this judgment so all right you hear you hear Lord Reed say that you hear that the Secretary of State's appeal is dismissed this is the bit that I didn't see right because I obviously the camera stops and I'm sort of there with my whatsapp just going bang 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 getting loads of messages what happens after that you're you have a you have a con with the client Do you walk out and face the media straight away what happens so in court, obviously, all the all the all the lawyers and and one of the uh, of our clients, and I think um, a couple of the other claimants were there. Yeah, we. I think everyone's in a bit of a state of shock. It's relatively silent. Uh, you obviously still got to respect the court, so we weren't cheering and 
high-fiving each other, but we were all just all pretty somber. It was, it was just, uh, personally speaking, overwhelming. And I don't think I just said anything. And we just went around hugging people. I remember, obviously, our, our main barrister, the, the great man that is Raza Hussain KC, started walking back from where he is at the front, you know, nearer to the front of the court, hugging all his juniors, along with um, his co-lead, Philippa Kaufman, KC. He then comes to us, gives us all a hug. Um, we then, uh, I remember just, I think the, our, one of our clients must have thought, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of crazy because I was kind of hugging him. Uh, and then, and then we, yeah, we we start talking probably, and we well, then we start moving out of the courtroom. And at what point did you undo your top button, or was it always undone? <laughs> I didn't spot that. Was that? <laughs> I mean, you can watch it now on the Sky News YouTube channel if you want. I've got messages about my scarf. I mean, the irony is that I had lost my favourite scarf at um, a place that Shroy loved in East London, and he took me there. And I left my scarf there, so I had to get a new one. There's a lot of praise for the scarf. The people love the scarf. Scarf of the people. Were you expecting so televised and immediately cameras there? Yeah. No, no, no. As I was about to say, we in the court of appeal, obviously there was a lot, a lot of media attention, so we knew we knew that it would be. And obviously, moving in, walking into court, and all the conversations we had prior to that with journalists asking, "Will we be there? Are we ready to give statements, etc." Yeah, I mean, when we when we came into the court in the morning was obviously already mayhem and I think this is this has been different to other cases that we've done or at least that I've done in this in the sense that it is so politically charged and it isn't in the spotlight and I think our main concern when we're walking out of court is we're with a client and the press have been well I was going to say intimidating but also very frightening at times Um, so we were nervous about him and his visibility and ensuring that he could get outside the court from the back and that he was safe because there are serious questions around safety of not only our clients but our legal team um and yeah I mean it was it was amazing to to walk out and be able to kind of walk out with our heads held high and to to speak to the media about about the case but it was also sort of it was an opportunity to be you know a voice piece a, a voice for the people that we represent in a circumstance where they might not have otherwise felt safe doing so. Um, it was really, yeah, it was a really sad situation because uh, normally you you kind of, well, not say normally, not, not normally in this case, but generally you have draft judgments, you have an idea, even though you're not allowed to share that information with anyone other than your immediate legal team, um, you can't sort of, talk about it you can't prepare it with anyone else but you have an idea but here it was either we're going to win or we're going to lose or there's there may be something in between that's hard to come out with a you know a, a, a very clear statement so we were personally from a personal point of view are so not just happy with the win but the way in which the win was so so specific and 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 just a knockout blow right because that's when I could really go Guns, all guns blazing. Did you prepare a speech, by the way, or did you only prepare your your win speech? No, no, I didn't. No, I, I, I told you, Sophie. If we, I was walking out the back. I was, yeah. So, Sophie, you were more than happy to do the the, the speech if you we had lost. But that um, was, I, I just had prepared myself to be completely destroyed if we had lost. You know, uh, and maybe, maybe at the time I would have just said, 
something very general, like very disappointed and we will now consider our position, blah, blah. But yeah, when we came out, you know, it was, uh, yeah, I'd never seen anything like it. You know, we've, been, we've obviously been dealing with the press in different ways for many years, but that was uh, something, you know, and I, and I was so glad that I did because I did want to be around my team. Um, so I said to Sophie and Manini and Nick, listen, you're coming out with me and you're standing there. So I didn't want to do it. I didn't really want to be alone. And I was so glad that happened because it really was like, boom, all the cameras, all the mics, all the journalists saying, come, get it, get it. And then they gave me the opportunity to say what I said. And I was glad that it was um, received relatively well because, it, as Sophie said, it was, a, it was a chance to say what we had been feeling for a while and, and specifically mention our clients because couldn't, you know, we can't get them out, out on, the, on camera, relay what they would want to say. So we had to sort of do it in a way which I obviously understood had to get a headline and make it clear what we, we want, but do it in a way which conveyed their emotion. And that's one thing I was very conscious of, because if I had spoken any longer, I probably would have got more emotional. I could still, I could, I could feel it, you know, and especially when Beth Rigby from Sky was asking follow-up questions, that's when I was really, like, struggling to respond without feeling more and more of anger towards all the various uh, people involved um, in terms of government officials and ministers and all the rest of it. Did you say everything you wanted to say? Um, probably not, but I, I knew that I wanted to keep the statement short and sweet and the questions that were put to me, I, if I had had those statements, I guess in a way it's nice to be instinctive. If I knew that they were asking me those questions, I probably would have prepared a different answer to them but but that's you know that's the way it was I think what you were saying about anger there were some journalist questions about you know the government's disappointed you're delighted obviously obviously we're delighted by the judgment but there was an element of it's it's intensely disappointing that we had to have this long-running litigation I mean the entire case is incredibly disappointing from the start to the finish, from the inception of this policy, it's incredibly disappointing that the government didn't heed warnings of its own officials or listen to the UNHCR and that they've wasted £140 million in Rwanda and then they've put our clients through hell and back. I mean, obviously, it's a, it was a day of victory, but it should never have been necessary for us to have spent so much time and energy on a case like this. And I think... You know, what you were saying to Fika about our clients, obviously, this is a case that is now fascinating kind of constitutionally and politically and academically. And everyone can look at, you know, the ramifications and it's kind of raises all kinds of intellectual questions. Sure. But at the heart of it are the people, you know, our young Syrian client in court who's got family in the UK, who now feels like he's got some hope for the future and as you were saying, having the emotion of what that means in real terms for real people and their lives and what comes next for them has always been the driving force behind this far more than kind of the the politics and, and the press and, and, and everything that comes with that. Yeah, and that, I agree. And that I think in, in many ways, this case, this case was so special in that regard, because often once you go all the way up to the Supreme Court, it very much is a, on a legal issue it may be very technical it may be all about interpretation and construction of law and maybe the human being at the heart of it 
not isn't necessarily central and yet in this case it all it always was the 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 way in which we argued it in the way in which certainly in the way in which our barristers when they're on their feet the emotion and the however brilliant technically they were they showed their passion and their 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 care for the central people involved who were the clients the um the individual seeking international protection here did the um government lawyers leave through the back door or did they come out as well well none of the government legal department were there as far as i could see no i think they were but i didn't i didn't see them well yeah i didn't see them and their lead kc lord panic was there i didn't notice anyone else and none of the home office officials were there either they must have thought that there was a strong chance of of loss and tried to avoid the at least the media the optics of being present and on the media and their facial expressions after the fact i think that's what was so frustrating about suella baravaman the former home secretary's responses and you know this was predictable we knew that this was going to happen if you knew this was going to happen why did you put in place a policy well it was pretty patel at the time but why was the government pushing through a case if they thought that it was unlawful if they thought it would be found by the supreme court in this country to be unlawful why were they trenchantly refusing you know to heed the warnings of their own officials and of the unhcr the kind of the the government briefing around we're expecting to lose just made the absurdity of the entire thing all the more poignant i think that you've already given 140 million pounds on, on a on a case that you think you're going to lose. I mean, it's just, it's so silly and it's so, it's so silly and it's so political and it feels like a game. But as we've said, yeah, it's not funny when you're the client and you're the one whose future is at, at stake. Yeah, why appeal to the Supreme Court? You lost in the Court of Appeal. Take that loss, consider the judgment. And if you're going to have a follow-up plan, work on it. And then go back to the, the go back to the public with your, you know, with your new plan. But no, you, you, you want to appeal it and you threw everything at it, thinking that you would win in the Supreme Court. So obviously the political discourse after the judgment, what are your thoughts on that? I, I found it to be some of the craziest shit I've heard. If, if I'm being honest with you, I mean, the, the idea that you litigate this whole issue to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court is unequivocal, unanimous, quite direct... And the first stuff that I'm reading on Twitter is, doesn't matter, we're going to do it anyway. I'm not, I'm not really asked. And, and the whole thing, I think, I think, in fact, very quickly after those noises came out, the current Justice Secretary came out and said, well, that's the rule of law and, and we will have to listen to it. You know, exactly what Tofiq said in his speech, it was, it, it's very important for the rule of law. But the idea that there are so many in power that don't see it that way and can say, okay, look, we really want to get these planes going to Rwanda, right? So what is there? There's domestic legislation, there's international legislation, there are various tiers of court domestically and a few international courts. Can we just put in a notwithstanding clause or something along those lines to tell all of those institutions and checks and balances to do one? That's that's basically what all of the discourse I've seen online has been, right? From From people that are very, very senior decision makers. And it's frightening, man. It's frightening. At what point do you take a step back? At what point do you roll back and go, if I've got to disapply pretty much every check and balance that there is within our judicial system to get something to go, 
maybe I've got it wrong. Or do these people just not look at the world that way? You know, that, that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's scary times. And I know we sometimes, or I certainly do use sort of kind of powerful words because you feel, you feel that, but they may not necessarily fit the, um, the, the use. But when the government has a reaction like that after the Supreme Court makes that decision on the facts, doesn't really even pause to consider it. Uh, and then within hours talks about effectively ignoring it or passing legislation that um, disapplies various things. When the government acts in that way, you can, you, you can only think of one word, and that's tyranny. That's what, that's what this government is, in my view, um, on the verge of being tyrannical in its way of applying or disapplying the rule of law. And that's why I said it, the steps of the courts, I meant it. You've got to take this seriously. You can, you can absolutely hate losing. You can disagree with the court. You can, you can even take a view that the evidence isn't strong enough in their view. But once the court's made a decision, you've got to respect it and you've got to consider it seriously. And, and it comes down to what we were talking about earlier. You've just seen a very cogent analysis of why Rwanda is unsafe. Just read it, take it seriously and think, all right, let's try something else. There's a great extract in the judgment where I think the Supreme Court is saying, you know, th- this is what we do. This is our this is our function in the UK constitution. And they say, weighing competing bodies of evidence and assessing whether our grounds for apprehending risk are familiar judicial functions. This is the job they are given to do and they have done it. And the idea that the that the government is now going to sort of use that loss as part of a game and use our clients as pawns in that game to try and circumvent it in, in some way is it's it's not a sensible and it's not a serious reaction. And I think that's what's so disappointing is you expect a serious reaction from a serious judgment where people's lives are at stake. And the absence of that felt, you know, it it felt very disappointing. You know, we all remember when we got the interim measure from the ECHR that had the effect of stopping that first flight. We had gone to the Supreme Court and for their own reasons, they had refused the injunction. That's why we had to go to Strasbourg. Um, I remember at the time the government were gleeful and very clear that, you know, our domestic courts, the highest court in our land has made that decision and yet a foreign unknown judge has decided against us and how dare they Um, but now the Supreme Court has decided something against them and they don't like that decision they're saying all sorts to try and disapply that decision, that's not how it works that's not how a rational fair government that has respect for the rule of law behaves, you know, they don't just uh, agree to to Supreme Court decisions when they when they're in their favour and then then um, try to try to silence them when they're against it and that's exactly what's happened here in the same case at various times and that's something worth mentioning. So that's I, whilst you were speaking, I managed to find the the statement from the then Home Secretary, right? Brilliant. And it, it goes along the lines of I've always said this policy will not be easy to deliver and I'm disappointed that legal challenge and last minute claims have meant today's flight was unable to depart. It's very surprising that the European Court of Human Rights has intervened 
despite repeated earlier success throughout all levels of our domestic courts. So I, th I think that says it all really isn't. I mean, if you're, if you're saying that you're surprised about Europe intervening in, in sort of repeated success at domestic courts, well, Court of Appeal, two to one, Supreme Court, unanimous, you know. If this was, if this was a two, three-legged football game, do the aggregate scores, man. Well, we'll see what happens going forward. I'm sure we'll be back to talk about it more in the coming months. We couldn't have done this without our incredible All-Star Council team. Raza Hussein Casey, Philippa Kaufman Casey, Chris Knight, Jason Popjoy, Anna Rudmato, Emmeline Pughes, Will Bordell and Rayan Fakuri. We're incredibly grateful for all your work and also our council team from the interim relief hearings, Care for Calais, Detention Action, PCSU and everyone who supported us along the way online and offline. But our biggest... Our biggest thank you, as always, goes to our incredibly brave clients. And we thought it would be apt to end with this quote from our client who has been in limbo for the last 18 months and can now breathe a little easier. And he says, oh, God, I think I'm going to cry if I read this. He says, this decision is a lifeline. It renews our hope and life. This decision means we have now hope for life that they're not taking us somewhere else. And it's now the start of my life. Um, and that makes it all worth it. Thank you.